This is Brian Colburn from the Playlist Wars podcast, and you are listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. My name is Jason Drury, 
welcoming you back to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network and the second of our two-part interview with the great film and TV composer Bruce Broughton, which took place via Zoom at his home in Los Angeles in April 2021. During part one, we talked about how he got into television scoring, his first film projects, and his work on Suverado, Tombstone and Young Sherlock Holmes of which Broughton met the producer, Steven Spielberg, during the recording sessions. Another series you worked with Steven Spielberg, aside from Amazing Stories, was Tony Twin Adventures in 1990. How did you find working on animation compared to your other assignments? Well, I think I mentioned early on that when I was a boy, I wanted to be an animator. So the guy who was my hero before Jerry Goldsmith was Walt Disney. And I, as a boy, I read everything I could get on animation and I tried to draw it. I mean, I wasn't very good. Good thing I didn't do it. I have a grandson who's a lot better than I am. So I had gotten a request at Disney right around the same time as Tiny Toons. I'd gotten a request at Disney to do this feature, uh, Rescuers Down Under. The chance of working at Disney on an animated feature was to me like a dream come true, right? So I said immediately, yes, yes, I'd be happy to do that. But at the same time, I had Tiny Toons, which was a completely different job. And Disney wasn't crazy about me doing Tiny Toons uh, because for one thing, it was a different studio. It was Warner Brothers. Steven Spielberg was the executive producer. And he really was, I can tell you, he really was a hands-on producer on everything. I mean, he was the producer, although they had other producers, you know, working daily on it. And what they did, they were trying to redo like a younger version of the old Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies and the things that the Warner Brothers had with Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, Porky Pig, and also the kind of stuff. They had junior versions of it. They wanted the music to be as close as possible to, to what the music had been in those cartoons done by Carl Stalling. Well, Carl Stalling was a friggin' genius. He had started with Disney. He was an organist in Kansas City. Disney brought him out to L.A. with him. And Stalin worked for Disney for years, working on silly symphonies and things like that. And then they had a falling out. And then he went off to Warner Brothers and spent the rest of his life doing cartoons brilliantly. So I had to find one. I had to write in that style as well as I could and find other people who could write in that style. I was hired as the supervising composer. And my deal was I wrote the theme, you know, this. uh, Which I really enjoyed because I like writing silly little ditties and things. And that's. That's a silly little ditty. And then I had to, I wrote as many episodes as I could. I think I got about eight in. And then I had to find other composers who could write the other 92 episodes. I think I ended up with something like 25, 26 composers, many of whom got close to the style. One guy, Richard Stone, nailed the style. I mean, it had been a lifelong dream to write music like this. And he knew Carl Stalling just dead. I mean, he was just great. But I had lots of good scores. I had lots of, uh, I got Lawrence Rosenthal to do one. He was great. Joel McNeely, Bill Ross, Don Davis, who did The Matrix. Don did a couple of them. Had a whole bunch of people doing them, you know, and we got a lot of good scores. What was really interesting that I probably lost a few friendships doing it because I had to listen to everybody since I was the guy actually recommending composers that Warner Brothers then would hire. I listened to everybody's tapes. And what I found interesting was I got tapes from a lot of people, some who were really fine composers and some who were not you know, so great. But what I was listening to was the style. I wanted to see whether they could do the style. And I could pretty much tell when a person was good for the style and when they weren't. Uh, I couldn't tell for sure that everybody could do it, but I was pretty sure about the people who couldn't do it. And some of them were pretty good composers. I mean, some of them were good composers, not pretty good. Some of them were good composers. They just 
it, it took a certain kind of a style. It's like with Lawrence Rosenthal. I mean, Larry is a he's a terrific composer. You know, he's an Oscar winner and he's terrific. I'm thinking he's got the kind of facility that he could do this. It was something that John Williams could have done had he wanted to. And I, I wouldn't have called John, but I wouldn't have suggested for Jerry Goldsmith because I, Jerry didn't have that kind of a style. It's not that Jerry couldn't write. God knows Jerry could write anything except that. So it was a real kind of a dicey thing to go through. And, and a lot of people got ticked off because they didn't work on it, but it ended up being a lot of fun, uh, but it ended up being an awful lot of work. Um, I've just heard recently they're redoing Tiny Toons, so I don't know anything about it, except just being done over at Warner Brothers. But I would get calls from Steven Spielberg, and I would get calls after he had seen a couple of episodes, and uh, he would talk about it. He would talk about the music, and then he'd, he'd say, okay, well, after this phone call, I'm going to go watch a few more of these cartoons with Max, this little boy. And he said, we just love this stuff. You know? <laughs> They'd watch all the cartoons. So yeah, Steven was a real hands-on producer.
You mentioned earlier your work on Heart of Darkness, the first orchestral score for a video game. Um, how did that assignment come about, considering now the high quality of game scores these days? Yeah, it was the beginning. The way I did it wasn't the way the games are done now. I, I did basically the music to a 30-minute film, which was done in segments, a 30-minute animated film. The reason I got the job, it was produced by a French group called Amazing Studio, I think was what it was. And uh, it ended up being one of my favorite jobs because they were in Paris and I was in LA. So we had to have meetings. So they either came to LA or I went to Paris. So it was like back and forth. I mean, it was really you know, not, a, not a bad job at all. And there were also a bunch of really great guys to work with. They were really entranced to film Rescuers Down Under with the animation. And they tried to do their animation in the same style as Disney had done Rescuers Down Under. Their style isn't it's not exactly Disney, it's kind of French, but it's very good. It's very, very well done, the animation is. So they wanted the guy who had done the score to Rescuers Down Under. So again, I mean, to me, it was like doing another animated job. I was more than happy to do it. And with the Paris connection, I was really happy to do it. It was the, the show originally was gonna be put out by um, Virgin Interactive and it took so long for the production, Virgin ended up not releasing it and went out somewhere, somewhere else. And that was a really good experience. We had a really good time right up to the day of recording. I remember we recorded in London, Mike recorded, and um, they were just in heaven because they, you know, they had spent so many years working on this thing and finally they were seeing it with all the music. And, it was great. The thing in that game is it starts with an animated bit and then it takes you to something that happens that puts you into the game and you have to play the game. You have to be able to get through the game until you get to the next animated bit. The next animated bit may be only five seconds or it may be 35 seconds. It may be short or long. And then whenever it ends, it gets you right back into the game. And the game apparently is, is hard to play. And um, I've met people who made it. Somebody told me recently that he'd played it three or four times, so he knew the game well, and he'd gotten to the end. He saw, the, he saw how, the, how the show ended.
Now back to your film work, one of my all-time favourite scores is of yours is the it's from the 1990 film Narrow Margin, which was directed by Peter Hyams, as you worked for your work with a number of times. Tell us about your working relationship with Peter Hyams. Uh, actually, I did I sort of did three and a half movies with Peter. I, I met Peter when he was the producer on Monster Squad, and um, Fred Decker was the was the director on that. But, but Peter was the um, had sort of taken Fred under his wing and then was helping him with the production thing. If you're working with Peter, you have to be prepared to work. Let me say it that way. Peter was very demanding. I learned probably more from him than I learned from anybody because he would just hold your feet to the fire. You know, I mean, he wasn't going to give. I mean, if you could convince him that your way was right, you know, God bless you, you take it your way. If you couldn't convince him, you were going to go his way. It was his movie. And he had very specific ideas about just about everything. And he would... There's a, a funny little story. He, I, I don't remember what movie it was we were working on. It may have been Presidio. But at that time, I was working with Mark McKenzie, who's you know, a really good film writer, film composer. But, but he was working with me as an orchestrator. I guess, you know, Mark's a really nice guy. So I guess he was trying to make some points for me. I don't know. 
So he said to Peter at one point, he says, you know, Bruce worked really hard on this score. And, you know, he spent lots of hours late at night working there. And I know how he did be working there. And Peter looked at him and he says, I don't care. Everybody stays up late at night working on their shows. Everybody works hard. When you're working on a movie, that's what you do. You work hard. Everybody works hard. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's right. I mean, what's the difference between a composer? I said earlier, composers like to whine. They like to whine about that. Oh, I worked so hard. You know, it was so hard to do. And the director didn't understand what I was doing. Blah, 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 blah. You know, who cares? Um, you you got to get a director's job. Directors work really hard. If you want a hard job, become a director, you know, or become a writer where they don't even use your friggin' script. They, you know, they, whatever. I mean, being a composer is probably one of the more pleasant jobs on a movie. Peter just demanded that if you're working on his show, you're going to work, you know, because you're here to make it as, as well as you possibly can. And they say, I had a lot of respect for the guy. I worked on three movies which were very different. Uh, the Presidio was sort of like a cop show, you know, uh, with a little bit of a love of interest in it. Neuromargin was this long suspense thing. We had big disagreements in, in Neuromargin, and I rewrote lots of that score until it was the way that he wanted. And it came out fine. And then we worked on um, the comedy, uh, Stay Tuned. The cool thing about Stay Tuned for me, I mean, he got the perfect guy on Stay Tuned. I don't know whether he thought so, but he got the perfect guy on Stay Tuned because Stay Tuned was basically just a bunch of parodies of TV shows and movies that had happened before. So I had to parody this theme and parody that theme and parody that theme. I love doing that kind of stuff. He has a six minute animated section in there that was directed by Chuck Jones, the famous guy from Warner Bros. I mean, he had everything in it, right? So I had to constantly do all these styles. I mean, it was really a lot of fun, really a lot of fun. So I, I, I look back on the time with Peter as being instructive.
Now, I think all of your scores for Peter Hyams were recorded by Armin Steiner. In fact, the majority of your scores in the US were recorded by Armin Steiner, including Silverado. Now, we talked about working with Mike Ross, Trevor, in the UK earlier. Now, what was your working relationship with Armin Steiner? It's really close. Um, Armin and I, I, I consider Armin a really good friend. Um, I talked with him the, the other day. Whenever I worked in LA, I, in LA, I've worked with several people depending upon their um, availability. The same as, same as working with Mike, uh, availability. You try to work with the same person because uh, the same thing with the, with the instrumentalists. You try to work with the same people because as you get to know them, you know what their sound is, you know what they can do. And they, they get to know you and it's just, it's a really great relationship. It's the same thing with your mixer because you're basically entrusting your sound to that person. And Armin just had this amazing sound or has this amazing sound of an orchestra. I mean, he was a, as a kid, he was a violinist. So he understands how the instruments work. He understands what it's like to sit in, in an orchestra. He understands what it's like to play a line. He had just this, to me, this really beautiful sound. Uh, he, he used to be the mixer at 20th Century Fox. And so he got to know that stage really well. It's basically the same stage that Alfred Newman worked on. They changed the recording booth, but basically the stage is the same one. He got to know it really well. So before I got into the movies, I started working over there on some of the TV shows. Like I remember doing Dallas over there and a couple of TV movies. When it came to doing Silverado, Silverado was a Columbia movie and that was on the same lot as Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers has a really fine stage too, where they did all the uh, Warner Brothers movies, you know, in the 30s and the 40s with Korngold and Steiner. But the thing that I noticed about Fox to me was that Fox was very bright. It had a, an enormous high end. It had this full spectrum of sound. And I thought, boy, for this movie, Silverado, I want as much power as I can possibly get in terms of the sound spectrum. I want to do it at Fox. So I asked them and they let me do it at Fox. And so I had Armin do it. Well, I think it was one of the, I don't want to talk for him, but I think it was one of the joys of his life too, because he remembers really well doing Silverado. There was one thing that happened on the end credits that right before the big final chord, da, 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 there's a big timpani, there, a timpani thing or a bass drum or whatever. When we recorded it, the room actually shook. The floor actually shook, wow. right? So after a while, you start to think it's kind of a silly memory, right? So several years later, Armin and I were mixing the CD. And so he got out the original tapes. And so we're mixing the original stuff we did. And we get to that spot and sure enough, the floor goes <laughs> And Armin jumps up and goes, there it is, there it is, listen to that, you know? It was, um, it was pretty cool. It was really pretty cool.
the last time I worked with Armin on a, on a TV show was on um, The Orville. And again, I mean, he just knows where to put the mics. He knows how to balance an orchestra just so that it never sounds phony. It always sounds real. He would say to me very often, I'd, I'd say, hey, I mean, I'm up conducting. I'd say, hey, Armin, can you bring the horns up? He said, why don't you tell them? Oh, horns, play a little louder, you know, because he, he would say, if it's right in the room, it'll be right in here rather than have, have him pushing this up and, and doing all the balance himself on the stage. you know. And when we used to leave the sessions, we wouldn't do a mix. I would just, I would walk away with what we recorded. I mean, often the guys would do a mix down and they change this and they change that. I never had to do that with Armin. It always, it always came off just, just great. Anyway, I think Armin is just, uh, he can be kind of, kind of a curmudgeon, but he's just wonderful. I'll tell you, I mean, if this is, you're not asking about this, but I'll, I'm going to tell you anyway. I've often thought about this. You know, this isn't a one-man job. They, they like to say that movies are a collaborative experience. When you're doing a score, it's truly a collaborative experience because there are a lot of people involved. I mean, these days, when you're doing synth scores and you have so much technology, you, you, you need a lot of people around to help you do this and do that and all stuff. But even doing um, acoustic scores, you have... The musicians, you have the people who set up the mics, you have the stage itself, and then you have the mixer. The musicians, as soon as they play a note, they're playing your note. That's what you sound like. That's your music. That's you. So when you when you get a CD of, let's say, Silverado, and you hear the horn playing a solo, that's Richard Parisi. That's Dick Parisi. That's who I am on, on the CD. And whatever Silverado sounds like, I mean, I wrote the notes but that guy played them. Tommy Johnson played the tuba. Al Kaplan, my brother, played on the trumpet. I mean, I can go through and I can pick out all the all the instrumentalists because years later, 20, 30 years later, I can hear these things. I go, oh, that was that was uh, Dominic or that was Louise or, or that was John or something. You know, this person that comes through. And what I got to realize was as I go back and I listen to my old CDs, so many of them, particularly from the movies, were recorded by Armin. I listened to it and I'm thinking, oh, thank you, Armin. I mean, it, it just sounded... That was the way that I hoped I would sound. And between working with me and working with him, the two of us working together, it was able to really create something that ended in, in being that. So you end up being grateful to a lot of people and realizing that there are a lot of people who you are. You know, when they hit somebody, hears your music. Yeah, it's your music and it's your notes, but those guys are playing it. That guy recorded it, you know, mm, and they're responsible for a lot of it.
Now, after Lost in Space in 1996, the major projects that you were hired to compose seemed to dry up. Was this by choice or...? <laughs> no. Uh, look, um, there are a variety of reasons. Things, things happen. I would say I've, I've done a couple of movies since then. Very, very low budget. Things are not on the screen. I've done a fair amount of television since then. Lost in Space, I guess, was the last big major film um, for whatever reason. I'm not unhappy with the way things turned out. I mean, I'm very happy with my life right now. I do a lot of writing and I do a fair amount of teaching. So I'm, you know, I'm doing fine. But yeah, the, the movie thing sort of ground to a halt pretty quick. You know, the thing about Hollywood, they say in Hollywood, you're never really dead until you're really dead. You never know. You, know, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, the styles have changed. Sometimes people like to go back and find somebody who hasn't worked for a while, you know, who knows? But yeah, around that time, it, that most of the big stuff was pretty much had come to a halt. Which was a shame because a lot of fans like myself were wondering, where were you? And looking forward to listening to your great music again. Well, I still write music, so we just have to look in different places to hear it. Now, in 2010, you appeared on the credits of Tron Legacy, assisting on Daft Punk's score as a consultant to the orchestrations. What was your involvement on that score? That was an interesting story. The... Um, the orchestrator on that is a guy named Joe Trapanese. Joe has since become, uh, and Joe is always a composer, but he did a lot of orchestration. And um, since that time, he's done a lot of movies. Uh, I met Joe years ago and um, actually gave him a few lessons. Not that I'm taking any credit for anything he did, but Joe is always a really good student of music, of composition, of orchestration. I mean, Joe's the real deal. And so Joe's, you know, he's a young guy and he's trying to make a living. And he landed a job with Daft Punk on Tron doing their temp stuff. And I think probably putting in the temp track and, and working with Daft Punk on their synth recordings and balances and you know whatever. He had a good chance of being able to be the orchestrator, but this was a big film for him. He had never worked on a film with such a big budget. So he called me up and he said, look, he said, I get along with these guys. They like me and I like them and I like the film. And it's a really good opportunity for me. I'm not sure that Disney would go to me as the first choice to be the orchestrator. So if I can get them to hire you to look over my scores and sort of indemnify them, would you be willing to do that? And I said, yeah, sure. Because I knew that he was good. So we did. We made a deal with Disney. And I, I, I don't remember what my credit is on the movie. Score, look her over or something. Um, but I mean, he would do the scores and he would send them to me. And I would go through them and I would make a few notes. He sometimes used my notes. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he'd say, no, I really want to hear this the way it was because he's one of those guys who can actually hear what he's doing. And when he tries things out, he remembers, I want to hear what this sounds like. And if he has to make a change, he'll make a change himself. So he recorded the entire thing. He went over to London, he recorded the entire thing. And then he came back and he played it all for me. And then we sat and we talked about it. And then realized we couldn't hear too much of it under all the sense, which was kind of a good laugh. But yeah, that was my contribution to uh, Tron. It was um, Joe did all the work and I just stood behind him and said, isn't he good? <laughs> and he was. I mean, he is. You know, he does a really good job. Now, in 2015, you returned to primetime TV, as you were, by scoring your well, co in Texas Rising with John Debney. How did, right. how did that collaboration come about? Um, John and I have been, a friend, have been friends for a long time. And he had a, a long-standing relationship with the producers on this. This was a huge project and he understood it to be an eight hour project with limited time. And um, so he called me up and he said, hey, would you want to split this job with me? Would you, you know, like we go 50, 50 on or something like that? And I said, yeah, sure, you know, it's fine. 
So we had a meeting with the producer. He was fine with it. He was, he's a great guy. And um, turned out that the show was 10 hours long, not eight hours long. So we literally split everything. I mean, we, we wrote themes together. We would write cues. Sometimes I would call him up or I'd send him an email. I said, I just finished cue such and such. I ended it in C. So he'd know what key to begin his next piece in. You know, I mean, it's like that going back and forth all the time. They finally, when we got the whole thing done, they had a screening for it one day. It was a, so a 10 hour TV movie is probably about eight hours of actual film, maybe more. So they had a whole screening all day. We were watching Texas Rising and we were sitting next to each other. And I, I, was, I would turn to him and I'd say, did you write that piece? And he'd go, yeah. I went, oh, okay. I don't remember that one. Did you write that piece? No. I said, oh, okay, I guess that's mine. Okay. <laughs> We'd written so much music together, but it was really half the half. I mean, we split, we split uh, the, the cue sheet. Um, all the royalties go 50% to him, 50% to me, because we just did everything just straight down. And when there was, you know, we were, um, the show is really theme oriented. And we had a lot of, um, I don't want to say pressure. What, I mean, it was pressure, but, but it was gentle pressure on coming up with themes that were going to be approved. And so, you know, he would write four versions and I would write four versions or, you know, and then sometimes his version would get used and sometimes my version would get used. And, you know, it was like that. Sometimes he would write the beginning of the theme and I'd write the end of the theme. The only time in my life I ever did that. Uh, and it worked out fine. We're still friends. Who conducted it? I did. He stayed in uh, LA and he produced it. Uh, and then I was in Nashville, as it turned out, uh, recording it. So, yeah, we did it long distance.
And in 2017, Seth MacFarlane hired you to write the main theme and score the pilot episode of his sci-fi series, The Orville. How did that assignment come about? That was serendipity, as far as I was concerned. I knew who Seth was. I never met him. I knew who he was as a producer and a little bit as a personality. I remember when he co-hosted the Oscars when I was a, a, an Oscar board member. So he called me up one day out of the blue and uh, on, on a weekend. And he said, he was very complimentary. He said, I really am a fan of your work and blah, blah, blah. Turns out that he was, he's also a fan of a lot of other people's works because he's like, he's good friends with Al Silvestri talking about Al earlier. He, um, he likes soundtracks. He likes good soundtracks. He's a collector of them. I mean, he knows about them, you know, TV shows too. If he's trying to show you something or tell you something, about something that happened on Star Trek, the TV series, he'll pick up his phone and blah, 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 and say, here, it's this one. And then he'll play the episode. I mean, so he, he really knows what he's doing. So anyway, I didn't know all this at the time. So he called me up and he said, I'm doing a show at the Hollywood Bowl during the summer that John Williams is conducting with the LA Orchestra, LA Philharmonic. And I'd like you to arrange a song for me. And I'm thinking, why me? I mean, I, I've never done that in my life. So I was all set to say no. And then I remember a friend of mine told me that whenever anybody ever asks him if he can do something, he always says yes. He said, because 95% of the time he knows how to do it already. And the other 5% of the time, if he doesn't, he can learn it. So I thought, okay, so I know John Williams and the LA Philharmonic. I, that doesn't scare me. I work with orchestras. And, um, Hollywood Bowl. I've done things with the Hollywood Okay. Sure. Okay, fine. So that turned out really well. I mean, he did his song and, and the LA Phil did it. And John was happy and everybody was happy. And that turned out well. So then he called me again several months later and he said, I'm working on a TV show, developing a TV show that's a sort of a um, docudrama space thing. It's not dystopian. He said, it's got more comedy in it. I don't want any of that dark stuff that you get into you know, shows these days. And I'm interested if you're, if you're interested to work on it. And I said, well, tell me more about it. And he said, well, he told me a little bit about the show. And then he said, one thing about it is you don't have to do demos. You don't have to do synth demos. Uh, you don't have to do uh, mock-ups. You just write your music. You look at the show, you write your music, and you go and you record it. And that's it. Like the old days. I went, great. And he said, you get to use an orchestra because I like to use orchestras. I said, okay, fine. No downside on that. So I did do a mock-up on the theme because I wrote the the main theme for him. And uh, he needed a timed out copy of that so they could put their main title to it. But other than that, I just sat at home. I mean, I, I went and I looked at the show with him. He had personally temp tracked the show. That is, he had put music into all the scenes which he said, I'm only putting this to you to give you a sense of how the scene feels to me. But he said, don't do any of this stuff. He said, I, I, I'm not interested in hearing this stuff. I'm only interested in hearing what you're going to do. But I'm doing this as sort of like a, an emotional guy, you know, a dramatic guy. I said, okay, fine. So I had an orchestra of about, I think, 70, 70 or 80 people, which is the biggest orchestra I'd ever had in my life for a TV show. And uh, that was it. Worked out great. And then he called me later and he asked me to do an album with him. So I did an album with him too, more arranging. And suddenly I became a composer, orchestrator, arranger. Kind of cool.
Seth's that's a great guy to work with. He's, I mean, because he's one, he, he's a smart guy, but there are a lot of smart guys, but he's a smart guy who's musical and he's musical with good sense. He's a performer, which could really get in the way. He knows where everything goes. He knows what he wants. He knows how it's supposed to be. Uh, he has good taste in that it's like mine. So I figure he's got good taste. He works with really good people like the, the, the team he's got on Orville. Joel McNeely and Debney and Andrew Cotty. These are three really talented guys. He found Andrew, I think, through his relationship with the John Wilson Orchestra. Andrew's a really good arranger, really good composer. These guys are all very well schooled. These are all guys who really know their way around the orchestra, you know. So like when he works on the other shows, uh, he has Walter Murphy as a composer on Family Guy. Walter's really good. And he's really good with the orchestra. He's a good composer. I mean, he just works with good people. I don't see there's any downside in working with Seth. And he's also fun. You know, he's pretty funny. Another composer he's worked with is Ron Jones. Yeah, Ron's another one, yeah. Yeah. He knows his composers, Seth, and he's the quality music on all his shows, and particularly the Oval. And you're... We, we did a funny thing. His, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how the UK deals with it, but over here, the show is being carried on Fox, excuse me, for the first two years. On the third year, it's going on Hulu. It's being streamed. So because it's going on Hulu, they have more room for a main title. Now, even having, like on original Orville, we have a one-minute main title. That in itself is unusual. That's a throwback to the old days because, you know, nobody has main titles, hardly. So he wanted a theme and the whole thing, just like we did. So when it got to be Hulu, he has room for a minute and a half of a main title. So we got a chance to redo the main title, to rearrange it. There were some other things, some other qualities he wanted because the show had changed a little bit. So about a, I guess it was about a year ago, I rearranged that. So we, we brought in an orchestra again. So I ended up using, I called for the same size orchestras I'd used originally. I thought it worked then, it'll work now. We started recording this thing. We started rehearsing this thing. And then I was told we were going to take a break. We were going to take a lot. We, we might take a break like as long as an hour. So I said to Seth, so what's going on? He said, um, we're hiring more musicians. Wow. <laughs> so he, had, he just figured it's not enough guys out there. So we added like a dozen uh, string players to it. So we're sitting around waiting and pretty soon the violin walks in and the cellist walks in, and, you know, so that's Seth.
Now, you've worked in your career with both British and American musicians. What do you see are the strengths of uh, the musicians in the States compared to our musicians in the UK? In in some ways, I I wouldn't touch that question with a 10-foot pole, but I can tell you this. Uh, I married one of them. You know, she's actually not British. She's actually a New Zealander. But as I said, I first saw her in Young Sherlock Holmes, and we've had a chance to talk about this. I've worked in, in England a lot. I've always enjoyed it. I think that these two places, London and Los Angeles, are the only places where you can get music read like this and perform like this. The musicians in London are spectacular. The musicians here are spectacular. There's, the styles are different. The styles of, of playing, I think the string playing is different. I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you which group really I mean, maybe some people would say, I, I, I like the way they do this, or I like the way they do that. The sound is a little bit different. As I say, the styles are different, but it's always a treat to go work in London, and it's always a treat to go work here. There are some sensational players here, and there are some sensational players over there. I think the last time I was over there was maybe two years ago. I did something for Disney. I did the last version of Soaring the, the, uh, for the theme park, the one that was done for China. And uh, we did it over, and we'd always done Soaring over there. Great. You know, just works great. Very, they they make you feel very confident. And the the same thing with the mixers. The mixers are very, 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 very good over there. They there are probably I may be wrong. Is I don't I don't think I'm wrong. There are probably more mixers over there who are used to working with acoustic situations than there are here. Over here, a lot of this stuff is is uh, electronically done. But you know, they're hip on both sides of the uh, of the of the pond, and um, it's great to have that much depth. I think if you go away from London or you go away from from LA, you'll notice it. But the two of them, you know, they're they're both really good. Now, as you said earlier, you also compose and now spend most of your time writing music for the concert hall. How do you feel writing music away from the pressures of film scoring? There's there's a big difference between doing film scoring and concert music because film score is entirely accompaniment to a film. And there's nothing that, that ever gets written in a film score that doesn't get prompted by something that happens in, in the picture. Whereas when you're doing a concert piece, the whole thing from beginning to end is you. 
So you have to come up with the stuff that's interesting and all that stuff. That's different. That I can't say that that makes it harder or easier. It's just a little bit different. One of the big differences is, is that when you're performing a film score, unless you're doing a concert like the Hollywood Bowl or someplace like that, nobody will talk to you about the music specifically. I mean, generally, the director isn't interested in what you wrote. They're only interested in the effect of your music on their film. So they may ask you to say, they may say, that's not emotional enough, or that's not romantic enough, or that's not sinister enough, or that's too comedic, or that's too, you know, you're making it too silly. And so then you, you change those things. And you change them musically. You're changing these non-musical things musically. And you will never hear a director say, I really like the way you voiced the flutes over there. You know, and that was really cool how you had the alto flute there. In the, you'll never hear that because we're not in a musical situation. We, we're dealing with music like we deal with the guys who sit, who dress the set, you know, or who put the plants in the set, you know, you're, you're just a part of the movie. In a concert, people will applaud. Even if you're doing a re recital at school and you've got your mother and your dad and your cousin and your girlfriend and, or three friends from high school, and, and that's in your audience, when the piece is over, no matter how good or how bad it is, you're gonna hear, they don't applaud in movies. Sometimes they do, if they really like the score, you might hear an audience applaud. I mean, I, I've heard that, but basically it's very different. So concert music is immediate and you get the performances and you get the power of the performances now. Whereas in film, the way it's recorded is the way it's going to be for all eternity until it shows up in, on the Hollywood Bowl concert. Very, it's, it's very, very different, different state of mind. What are your musical influences? Well, I, you know, when I was a kid, it was mostly classical music. And because, you know, because I took piano. And then because I grew up in the Salvation Army and had to play in the band, I got a lot of that. So I had a lot of influence on hymns, folk melodies, tunes like that. I had a good, I think the upside of that primarily was a certain kind of melodic sense and also really good grounding in, in harmony. I've noticed that a lot of the guys who come out here who are English or British, or mostly English, 
uh, you know, they go to the Royal School of Music or something, Royal College of Music, and they have a pretty good harmonic sense, better than Americans. Yeah, Americans, I, I've noticed that their elementary theory is not very good. I listened to that kind of music up through college. And then when I got out of college, I had been exposed to some more advanced music. And then once I started to write, I had to do everything, you know, I listened to everything. Because now you, you run out of, it's not so much that you run out of things, you need to extend your technique pretty quickly for the demands of the picture. So I was always looking for new things to do and listening, listening, listening. Still am. You know, I still listen to stuff. Now, going back to your film work, what directorial collaborations have you been most satisfied with in your career? Well, a lot of them, a lot of them were good. I, I never made the, the kind of connection with somebody like, John Williams did with Spielberg, or you know, some composers do. Like, uh, what's his name? Danny Elfman with um, Tim Burton. Yeah, Tim Burton. I, I never did that. But I had a lot of good experiences. I mean, I had good experiences with Larry Kasdan on Silverado, with uh, Barry Levinson on Young Sherlock Holmes, with uh, Tommy Schlamme on, um, who's a really fine guy and a good director, on um, the Axe Murder movie with Mike Myers. Uh, Peter Hyams was... I learned a lot from Peter. I mean, he was very demanding, but I learned a lot with him. I enjoyed working with John Hughes. He wasn't the director, he was the producer. I enjoyed working with John Hughes on two of his movies. I didn't have, I don't have many terrible stories. As I get older, the stories all become nicer and nicer. That's what it should be, really. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll tell you one thing, as I become older, I found that a lot of the scores that at the time I may have had problems with, or they were difficult to, to record for whatever reason, that they've been scores that, that have continued to be enjoyed by people. I hear back from them years later, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, okay, so it was worth it. So there was nothing, I never had any relationship. I mean, most, most of the people I worked with were actually really good to work with. I think they were all, actually, I think they were all really good to work with, because I, I always learned something from all of them. But I think all of them produced movies that gave something of value, so... Yeah, I can't complain. As far as problems are concerned, I heard you had problems with your Lost in Space score, and that turned out to be one of my all-time favorite scores of yours. No, I didn't. Actually, I didn't have a lot of problems with Lost in Space. The, 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 problem, the main problem with Lost in Space was that there was no time to do it. I, I had a little over two and a half weeks to do the entire score, and that was the hardest thing. In terms of director Steve Hopkins, he was great. He was very consistent. I mean, he was up against it. You know, I used to live, before I moved to this house, I used to live sort of on the way to the LA airport. I lived uh, in, in Bel Air. He would be going, like every other day, he'd be flying to the airport to go to London to do his effects, you know, and then he'd come back. Well, on the way to the airport and on the way back, he'd stop at my house and then he would come in and I'd play him what I had and, and we would talk about it. One thing about him was that he, whatever comment he made during that period was a comment that he remembered and would continue through until the recording. Because sometimes when you get to the recording and you have all the instruments there, people get kind of overwhelmed. But he didn't get overwhelmed. He knew really sure what he wanted to do. And sometimes he would just say, well, I think I've got a problem here. We need to do such, such, or so-and-so. Or we just moved that scene and now you're going to have to do such, you know, I mean, they were, but they, they, there was nothing really major. And in terms of working with the guy, I mean, the guy was great. And, uh, no, I had, a, I had a really good time with them. It was, I, I think the movies that were harder to do, that wasn't actually one of them because it wasn't much time. Sometimes you get into um, time constraint or you have mechanical problems or something. I don't know. I can't think of anything that really stood out as being a terrible problem. Mostly it goes, you know, it goes pretty uniformly.
how do you see the state of film music today? Well, um, <laughs> it's too easy being an older guy to take shots at the younger guys. You know, it's not like what I'm used to. It's not like the way, you know, when I started, we did blah, blah. I hear guys do that. There are actually a lot of scores that I've heard that I think are, are really good scores. And they're, they're not necessarily done by kids. Like first time I saw How to Train Your Dragon. I remember I, as soon as I finished it, I went and I wrote a note to John. I said, you know, this is a terrific score and great movie. And, you know, you're going to get a nomination or something like that, which he did. He should have gotten the award for it. I've seen lots of scores by Tom Newman and other guys like that, you know, who, that are that are really good. Occasionally, I see scores, new scores that are really interesting. I uh, the, the score to, um, Johan Johansson did it. Uh, oh, the space, um, oh, oh, Arrival. Arrival. Okay, the score I saw to Arrival, I thought that was a really good score. Now, that one was particularly interesting to me because it was basically sound design. In in terms of the music, there were maybe five notes, five pictures that he used. But he used the sound design in such a way that was so fascinating and I thought so successful. It made me realize that if I were a young guy now, if I were in my 20s, just beginning, and had the sense to do this and had the ability to do it, I would probably go more into sound design as a composer than into the traditional thing that I, that I went into. Because I think the manipulating of sound is really, really, really interesting. I haven't seen anybody do it as well as he did it. I've seen other scores. However, I sent a note to somebody the other day. I've been watching their series. Some it was on Amazon or or one of the and and I liked what he was doing. I'd seen it over several weeks, and I just liked the way that he had developed the show and the way he worked his materials. And I thought it was a very successful job. So occasionally, I see things that are really good. I often see things that aren't very good. And when I say they're not very good. I mean, they're not very good musically. They're inept. They're amateurish. They're overly used. I don't always blame the composer. I sometimes blame the people he's working for, he or she's working for, because there seems to be a lack of understanding of what music does in a film. I mean, you know, I, I, I was watching a show last night, a series which I've carped about a lot. I mean, it's not a great series, but it, it, you know, it went on several seasons. And the music is written by somebody who obviously has a lot of ability. You know, you can see that. I mean, to, if you just listen to a section of music, you go, oh, actually, that works really well, and that's really well done, all that kind of stuff. But, but I think the show didn't understand what they wanted, so they put way too many songs in it, which, by the way, pollute the uh, the actual show itself. And then they apparently asked the composer to write this style and write that style and write this style and this style. So this is hodgepodge of stuff by somebody who probably left on his own devices would have done something pretty decent. So I find a lot of confusion. A couple of years ago, in preparation for a talk, I went back and I looked at some of the shows that we were doing when I worked for CBS, uh, which was, you know, 50 years ago, and uh, looking at old shows like Hawaii Five-O and stuff like Gunsmoke and all that stuff. And what I was interested to see was, one, the music was louder. It was more a player in the sound design of the, the entire picture. But also, there wasn't so much music. We used to put music then when we needed it. When there was some reason to put some music in there, that's when we put music in. And the rest of the time, there was nothing. Now, my gosh, I mean, there's music everywhere, everywhere. People start to talk and you hear music, 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 music. And I, I see these TV dramas. Sometimes my wife is watching them in the evening. And I'll you know slip in and I'll see some of them. And it's just music going on all the time in this dreary, stupid, insipid stuff. So there's there there's that too. I would say there's there will always be the, the people who really know what they're doing, who understand the, the point of music, who know how to do it. And then there will be the other people who are the beginners. I mean, they were like that even when I was when I was beginning. There were some people who were a lot better than others. But we had a lot of people who were really very competent, people who had grown up 
doing commercial music for years and years and years, who could not only compose the whole thing, but could orchestrate the whole thing and conduct the whole thing. So now, I mean, because the demands are so different and, and so wide, you have a lot of guys who don't have, or a lot of people who, who don't have access to acoustic music and have access to electronic music. So they will come up, they'll create it however they can, which is great, but they never learn the other stuff. Now, on the other hand, you get people like me who are really good at the other stuff and so-so in the electronic stuff. So, you know, it's kind of a trade-off. I, I would say that the state of music right now is complex, certainly different than when I was. And yet there's also the, the element of style, because styles change. I've gone at least two or three times through periods when orchestral music was not done anymore. You know, everybody wanted to do songs and banjos or whatever. And then, you know, it comes back and, and usually comes back with slightly different twist on it so that now we're doing orchestras with electronic stuff. You know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that happen. So I don't know. I mean, right now there's just, there's a lot of opportunity, but I think there's a lot of confusion. So, okay. But occasionally you see some really good, you know, some really good jobs done. You mentioned earlier that you not only write film music, but you also teach film music. When did that start and how long have you been passing on your expertise to students? I was part of the group that helped begin the film music program over at University of Southern California 30 years ago, or whenever it was, or 40 years ago, I don't know how long ago it was. And I taught there for years, and then I gave that up for a while, and taught there meaning I did a class on, I think on composition or something. And then I came back to it because I wanted to teach uh, orchestration. I had been doing some some sort of rant. Well, occasionally I would go to a university or a college somewhere, uh, either in the United States or somewhere in the world, and I'd be giving these these uh, talks about orchestration. And I realized that the people I was talking to really knew nothing at all about the subject. I mean, they didn't have the education for it, and they didn't have the background for it. So I thought I would like to really teach it and develop a course, which I did, and I pitched that to USC again. And, and I so I worked in that program again for several years uh, until recently. Along the way, I, I realized that you know I enjoy teaching, and occasionally. I would give lessons, not very often, but occasionally I give lessons. But I started teaching also over at UCLA. I lived at that time about two miles. I lived within walking distance of it. Not that I ever walked, but I used to give composition lessons and, and occasionally I would do film stuff. And, and so I was doing actually both universities. And then a couple of years ago, when I moved away from there, I decided not to do that any longer. And I took up a residency at the University of North Texas, which puts me there twice a year. And I spend a time looking at students' work. Sometimes I give talks on film music because they have a film music, film media program. And uh, they have a huge jazz program, which is really spectacular. And they have a very, very good, very good music school. I've also donated all my scores to their library because I know that they'll be used and they'll be looked at and they'll be studied and all that stuff. So I continue to do that kind of teaching. I do a few lessons. I try not to do too many because I take them seriously and they take a lot of time. I like it to the extent that I learn a lot. And what's exciting is when I see my students get better and I do see them get better, that's really exciting. Sometimes they don't see the progress and I can just tell them, I said, okay, remember this thing that you did three weeks ago or four weeks ago or the piece four times before? Do you remember that you couldn't do that? Now you're doing it right here. See that? And you learn how to do this and you learn how to do that. And then they get really excited. And it's good for me because sometimes I see them do things or I see them learn things that I realize I can use the same techniques in myself. So it's, I think it's made me a better composer. Which composers that you have teach are now working in the film industry? Marco Beltrami was in my course at USC. Several guys have come, to, have come through my program, have been in my classes. 
I can't take responsibility for their, for their careers, but uh, several of them have been doing, you know, quite well. Is there anything that you're working on at present that you can tell us about? Present? Nothing, nothing film-related that I can think of. I've never known very far. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I, I, I don't do as much of that kind of work as I used to do. That's, that's for real. I think everybody knows that. Yeah. But even then, I've never known very far ahead what I was going to be doing. So the things I'm working on right now are keeping me really busy. I've got enough work um, on my own things, keep me going for several months. And I couldn't even tell you on those, which of those I'll ever get around to finish because I've got lots of projects. I'm just getting involved in trying to do a collaboration with a group on something else. So I, I stay very, very, very busy. I don't feel that I'm in the least bit retired. In fact, I'm looking forward to starting a piece pretty soon and getting kind of itchy, trying to get back to writing. Right, what I'm doing right now is finishing reorchestrating something for a publisher of mine. When, once I get the score all finished, I'll send that off and I can start to write again. And finally, when you reach the end of your career, Bruce, how would you like your work remembered by film music fans or even just music fans in general? You know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be around to know whether they remember me or not. So it's not going to be anything to me. Um, I'd like to think that some of the music, no, I can say it this way. I would like to think that some of my music gave other people as much enjoyment as some other composers' music gave to me. Uh, I really like music a lot and I have... A lot of composers that I listen to, I have a lot of favorite composers. I have some that still astound me at how talented they were and how much I, you know, I really love their music. And I would like to think that there were some, there was some music of mine that meant as much to somebody else as somebody else's music has meant to me. That I think would be the, be the biggest thing. It's sort of like, you know, when we write, all the stuff that we write, actually I think for creative people in general, whether you're a composer, you're a writer, whether you're a musical performer, whether you're a dancer, a choreographer, a painter, whatever it is, you're basically showing a um, physical response so that when you write, as a composer, when you write a phrase, you write phrases in a certain way that have a lot to do with your metabolism, meaning they have a lot to do literally with you. I think that you can tell the personality of a lot of composers. I think you can probably tell something about how they were. And I firmly believe that when you listen to a composer, particularly a good composer who isn't overly influenced by other people, although we're influenced by everybody, is that when you listen to their music, you're really listening to them. Like if you listen to Bach, you're listening to Bach. I mean, that's that's the guy right there. I mean, the guy whose notes you're hearing because the way that he wrote, the way he worked those phrases out, that's the way that particular member of the Bach family wrote music. Same with Beethoven or Gershwin or Ravel or me, anybody. So to the extent that you can be influenced by these people, I think is is an interesting thing. And, you know, you get a guy like Bach, he was around 300 years ago. You know, I mean, that's a long time to have people listening to your music and still be inspired by your music. And he was able to do that. A lot of those guys lasted a long time. They won't last forever, but that's quite an influence, you know, to be able to have. So it's a long answer. I hope the music means something to somebody. But if it doesn't, that's the way it goes. I mean, I, I, I know that I've had enough influence on people that little bits of it will, will last. I mean, somebody will be writing something and say, oh, I picked that up from Bruce. Or I learned that on one of Bruce's scores, just like I do. I mean, I learned that from Respighi, or I learned that from, from Jerry, or I learned that from somebody, you know. So, yeah, it's a process. Bruce Broughton, this has been a real pleasure talking to you. As I said before, you're one of my film music heroes, because I've, I've listened to your music over, the, over my you. lifetime, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, finally, after all these years. Well, you have good questions, and it's been pretty easy to, to do this. So, uh, thank you for that. Yeah. 
Thank you for joining us. I do hope you've enjoyed both parts of our interview with Bruce Button. And if you'd like to know the tracks of music we've played on both parts of the show, please go to the music playlists, the Cinematic Sound Radio website at cinematicsound.net. And the Talking Soundtracks theme was composed by David Cosina. I leave you with one of my all-time favourite pieces of music from the pen of Bruce Button. The full nine-minute end title suite from Tombstone, entitled Looking at Heaven, performed by the Symphony of London Orchestra, conducted by David Snell. My sincere thanks again to Bruce Broughton for joining us, and until we meet again, from me, Jason Drury, is take care, stay safe, and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.